0: Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 3. Revelation 3 for our time of study in the Word this morning. We're doing a verse by verse study through the book of Revelation. And as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And my goal this morning is to cover verses 7 through 13. And the title of the message is Encouragements for a Beaten-Down Church. Encouragements for a Beaten-Down Church. This letter that Jesus sends to the Church of Philadelphia is actually the most positive of all of the seven letters that Jesus sends to the churches of Asia Minor. Jesus has no criticisms to mention about this church, neither does he feel the need to deliver any corrective command to them. In fact, the only command in this letter is in verse 11, where Jesus says to them, hold fast what you have. That's it. Hold fast what you have. Imagine Jesus looking your life over from top to bottom, and the only instruction he has for you when he's done is, Hold fast what you have. That's kind of like keep up the good work. And that's it in terms of instructions. You're in a pretty good place spiritually if that is his only instruction to you as a Christian or as a church. Having said that, the Church of Philadelphia does stand in need of great encouragement from Jesus. And part of the reason for this is their circumstances in the city of Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia got hammered by a great earthquake in A.D. 17, which a first-century Roman historian 40 years later described as the greatest disaster in human memory. While other cities of Asia Minor were impacted by this great earthquake, the epicenter of the quake was closest to the city of Philadelphia, which was almost on top of the fault, which was responsible for this great earthquake. And because of this, Philadelphia was plagued by aftershocks almost daily for a long time thereafter, more than any other city in Asia Minor, to such an extent that. An ancient writer named Strabo was writing around twenty twenty one AD, about four years after this earthquake, and he said the following, "...the city of Philadelphia is full of earthquakes, for the walls never cease being cracked, and different parts of the city are constantly suffering damage. That is why the actual town has few inhabitants." But the majority live as farmers in the countryside as they have fertile land. But one is surprised, even at the few who live here, that they would be so fond of the place when they have such insecure dwellings. He's like, I can't imagine why anyone would be fond of this city of Philadelphia and living here. Adding to the insecurity of living in an active earthquake zone, The city of Philadelphia is right now in the midst of an economic depression. Philadelphia's economy was built around its vineyards and its number one export was grapes and wine. This industry was so much tied to their identity as a city that the primary deity that they worshipped was Dionysos, who was the god of wine. But in A.D. 92... A.D. 92, three years before this letter is being written here in the book of Revelation, the Roman emperor Domitian delivered an edict requiring that all grape-growing empire-wide be cut in half. Imagine the impact of this edict on the city of Philadelphia having to reduce its vineyards by 50%. Scholars speculate that Domitian may have delivered this edict to protect the economic interest of vine growers in Italy or to encourage people to grow more corn on their land so that he could feed his armies. But the land around Philadelphia was not suitable for growing corn. So Domitian's foolish edict served to deliver a devastating blow to the economy of Philadelphia. I know this is a stretch for some of us to imagine, but try your best to imagine living in a situation where your government leaders have made decisions that essentially shut down the operations of half of all businesses and bring about dire economic consequences that you now have to live with. I know it's hard, but try your best to imagine... Some scenario like that, that's what the Christians in Philadelphia are having to live with during the time in which this very letter that we're going to look at today was written as they find themselves in year number three of this new normal. I'm sure they felt very powerless, economically tempted to rage in their hearts completely powerless to do anything about changing their circumstances economically. Beyond the economic and physical travails of the city itself, the church of Philadelphia is an embattled church by all accounts. They have experienced the fires of persecution and rejection. And Jesus notices that they are left with little strength or little power There was a significant Jewish population in this city at this time, and it seems that these Jews took a very aggressive posture against these Christians, excommunicating them from any fellowship with their Jewish compatriots and family members. On top of that, these Christians are being ordered, like everyone is around the empire, by the emperor to give a pinch of incense once a year and to confess the emperor as Lord, these Christians are refusing to do this, which leaves them without the certification that they need to buy and to sell freely, leaving them very much on the outs with the culture around them pushed to the fringe of society and having to deal with doors of opportunity and acceptance being slammed in their face. These are their circumstances, and this is a church that very much right now needs to hear from Jesus, and in our passage today, we get a precious glimpse of Jesus the encourager, Jesus seeking to encourage this beaten down church with some most timely words, and the way we're going to break down our study of this text is we're going to observe seven acts of Jesus designed to encourage a beaten down church to hold fast and overcome. Number one, he presents himself to them as the holy and the true one with the key of David. He presents himself to them as the holy one and the true one with the key of David. Listen to what he says in verse 7. And to the angel, or the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. How's that for an introduction? Jesus begins by presenting himself literally to these Christians as he who is the holy one, who is the true one, The word holy speaks of Jesus as completely and utterly distinct and set apart from all else that exists in the created order, especially anything tainted by sin. The word true speaks of Jesus as absolutely genuine and truthful in every imaginable way. He is the truth and he's the standard by which all truth is measured. And every promise that He makes will come true. Jesus is about to make some powerful statements and promises in this letter to the members of this church. And He wants them to know up front that the gold standard of His integrity lies behind every word that He is about to speak to them. Then He presents Himself to His readers as He who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Jesus is the Messianic descendant of David who has been chosen by God to sit on David's throne and to reign over the earth during the millennium and over the new Jerusalem forever and ever. We actually find very similar language in Isaiah 22, you might want to write down the reference, Isaiah 22, 22, where God is speaking to Shebna, who is the main steward over the house of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. And God pronounces judgment on Shebna and promises to replace him with a man named Eliakim. And God says in Isaiah 22, 22, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. Very similar language to what we have here in Revelation 3. God's point in Isaiah 22 is that whenever anyone wants access to King Hezekiah, who sits on the throne of David, Eliakim will be the one who mediates that access Anyone he opens the door for will be able to see the king. Anyone he closes the door to will not be able to see the king or to have access to him. And in our passage for this morning, Jesus presents himself as the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Meaning that God the Father has given this key power to Jesus and it is Jesus who has absolute control over who gets into his kingdom and who gets access to his royal blessings and who doesn't get that access. It is Jesus who determines who gets into the new Jerusalem and who does not. When Jesus depicts himself as he who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, Jesus is representing His unbridled and irresistible sovereignty. Whatever door Jesus shuts, all the powers of hell cannot open that door. Whatever door Jesus opens, everyone on earth can come together and try to close that door, but they can't because no one can overrule or overpower Jesus. If Jesus decides to shut the door of the kingdom to someone who will not enter through Him, there is no one and nothing that can get that door open for that person. If Jesus decides to open the door of the kingdom to Gentiles, like us, all the kingdoms of this world and all the forces of hell cannot close that door to us. No one overrules Jesus He has the keys, he controls the door, and whether someone gets in or out is 100% his choice. This means that if you are here today and you're interested in getting into the kingdom of God right now and through all of eternity, if you're interested in getting into heaven, it is Jesus that you must reckon with because he's the one who has the key. And he's the one holding the door to this beaten down church who has been shut out of society and who is suffering under an emperor who has shut down half of their economy. Jesus encourages them with this presentation of truth about himself. He's the holy one, the true one, the holder of the key of David. He opens and closes doors that he wishes and no one can ever overrule his choices. Ultimate sovereignty does not belong to the Roman emperor and his officials. Ultimate sovereignty does not belong to the Jewish synagogue in the city of Philadelphia. Sovereignty in our own country does not belong to whomever will be elected president this coming week. Ultimate sovereignty in this country does not even belong to we, the people, who vote. Ultimate sovereignty belongs completely and utterly to Jesus Christ. This is a great self-introduction of Jesus to these Christians in the church of Philadelphia, and it sets the stage for what Jesus does next, which leads us to the second act of Jesus designed to encourage a beaten down church to hold fast and overcome. Number two, He commends them for their faithfulness to Him. He commends them for their faithfulness to Him. Listen to what He says to them in verse 8. I know your deeds. And He's speaking of their good deeds. Their deeds of service and faith in Him. And speaking of their deeds, He continues and says... Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have, let's read it this way, because you have little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Society may have closed its doors on these Christians, but Jesus has opened his door to them, and there's no one who can shut that door the door Jesus has opened to them is the door to the kingdom, the door to the blessings of salvation, the door into his Father's presence at all times, the door to opportunities for service to one another, and the door of opportunities to reach out to the lost and engage in missionary activity as a church. This is the door that stands open for them to one day enter the new Jerusalem, an open door into the heavenly kingdom, and there is nothing that Satan or anyone else can do to close that door. These Philadelphian Christians may have been tempted to focus on things that they were not able to do in their current circumstances, but Jesus wants them to focus on all that they can do because He has put before them this open door. Now, why did Jesus put this open door in front of them? Well, because they believed in him and they demonstrated that genuine belief through their faithfulness to him. He says to them, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus so appreciates this about them. In telling them that they have little power Jesus is not criticizing them. He's probably referring to the fact that these Christians are small in number or that they have been ostracized and beaten down such that they now have little economic or, and political power to gain any kind of worldly advantage for themselves. Their power has been taken away from them. And yet Jesus says you've kept my word though you have such little power you've kept my word and have not denied my name These Christians could have let go of the gospel and gained some earthly power for themselves but they didn't do that Their economy was cut in half by the emperor's edict so One could understand their temptation to deny the name of Jesus in order to regain some economic advantage during rough times, but none of these Christians compromised in their situation where they had such little power. And how were they able to stay faithful like this? Well, because Jesus had put before them an open door that no one could shut These Christians did not obsess on the doors that were closed to them. They obsessed on the door that was open to them all the time by Jesus Christ. They knew they had entrance into his kingdom. They knew that they had access to their Father at all times. They knew they had access to the storehouse of God's provision for them. They knew they had opportunities for serving one another and sharing the gospel with the lost. And because of this open door, they held fast to the gospel and they had the wherewithal to remain faithful to Jesus because they kept going through that open door. These Christians had to have been a complete mystery to their enemies around them. These enemies tried to close off every door on these Christians And yet, it looks like these Christians have found some secret passageway to somewhere that leaves them joyful and happy in Jesus with hearts that are full and with a deeper allegiance to Jesus and His cause. And where does that come from? Well, they were going through that open door that Jesus had opened for them. And while the world could close every other door around them, Jesus said, no one's touching this door. You can come through any time. Perhaps you this morning are in circumstances where many doors have been closed to you. I would urge you to hear Jesus in this passage tell you that his door is always open to you. And hear him tell you that things will not always be as they are now. And neither will it be for these Philadelphian Christians. This leads us to the third act of Jesus designed to encourage this beaten down church to hold fast and overcome. Number three, he promises them ultimate vindication before their enemies. He promises them ultimate vindication before their enemies. This is amazing. Look what he says in verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Some of the fiercest enemies of this church were Jews who had aligned themselves against the church and excommunicated and ostracized its members and in so doing they made themselves... The agents of Satan, which is why Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. These people were biological Jews, but they were of their father, the devil. They're doing the desires of their father, the devil. And so Jesus says they're the synagogue of Satan. They say they are Jews and are not. They're not God's people, they lie. And Jesus says, I'm going to make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Jesus didn't have to make this promise. He could have just said, hey, you just know that I love you. But he says, I'm going to make them know this in a future day. Jesus here is promising these Christians... Victory and complete vindication before those who are right now their enemies. We know from Philippians chapter 2 verses 10 and 11 that the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that in itself would be more than enough for us to see our enemies bow before Christ and acknowledge him as Lord. But we learn here in this passage, in Revelation 3, that Jesus is going to see to it that these very people will bow at the feet of his people and acknowledge that we were loved by Jesus with a special love and that he was on our side. In other words, Jesus is assuring these Christians and us that we are on the right side of history. Our day of vindication and triumph will come if not in this life. It will come in the life to come in the most profound of ways. Jesus' promises continue in verse 10, which leads us to the fourth act of Jesus designed to motivate this beaten down church to hold fast and overcome. Let's word it this way. Number four, he promises to keep them from the hour of testing to come upon the whole world. He promises to keep them from the hour of testing to come upon the whole world. Listen to what he says to them in verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Before we look at the promise that Jesus makes here, notice that he commends them for keeping something. He commends them, he says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. The logos of my perseverance he says the way that the new american standard translation translates this is exactly how it is written in the greek and i think their decision is wise to leave it exactly how it's stated in the greek some other english translations that you have make interpretive decisions about what they think it means i love translations that say here's what the greek says and we're going to leave it to you to figure out the richness of the meaning rather than making interpretive decisions for you. What is the word of my perseverance that Jesus is speaking about, that he's saying that these Christians have kept? Well, it's the word of whose perseverance? It's the word of Jesus' perseverance, right? Think about it. The gospel is the message of, of Christ coming into this world and persevering in obedience to his father through his whole life all the way to and through the cross. In fact, in Hebrews 12 too, this very Greek word translated perseverance is used when we're told that Christ persevered the cross. He endured the cross. Guys, Jesus never bailed out on His path of obedience to His Father. And salvation is now ours because Jesus persevered in going to the cross and dying on that cross for our sins. He persevered in obedience through every temptation through all of His life all the way to the cross. But the perseverance of Jesus goes beyond even this. And I'm so thankful for this. The Gospel is also the message that Jesus perseveres with us. Once He saves us, He perseveres with us through our trials and even through our failures all the way until the end. And He never lets us go or gets fed up with us. Is that good news for you? We've given Him thousands of reasons to abandon us But the gospel message is the message that Christ perseveres with us. This ought to be a very precious doctrine to us. Dane Ortland says it this way. We're talking about something deeper than the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We're talking about the doctrine of the perseverance of the heart of Christ within the skeletal structure of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is the beating heart of God made tangible in Christ who perseveres with his saints and never lets them go. That is the word of my perseverance Jesus is talking about. And yes, such a gospel about such a Savior generates within us a persevering love and trust for him. That's because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the message about a persevering Savior who persevered through the cross and who perseveres with us and who can generate within us the perseverance that we need to persevere all the way until the end. And Jesus here in verse 10 is speaking to these Christians and commending them for keeping this word of his perseverance and not letting it go. And he says to them, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is a hugely consequential promise from Jesus that is worthy of our close inspection. The hour that Jesus is speaking of here is, first of all, described as the hour of testing. The hour. The ultimate hour of testing. This Greek word translated testing can be translated as temptation or testing, but it clearly means testing here, even though this time he's speaking of will impose many temptations on people. Jesus also describes this hour as that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, not just upon the city of Philadelphia, but the entire world being global in its reach He also says that the purpose of this hour is to test those who dwell on the earth. In other words, this hour of testing over the whole world will reveal each person's heart who dwells upon the earth and will show them to be who they really are. Notice that Jesus describes this time of testing as the hour which means that it will not be a period of indefinite length, but a brief period of testing over the whole world that will last for a specific duration of time. And Jesus is saying to the church of Philadelphia, I will keep you from the hour of testing. Please note that Jesus doesn't simply say that he will keep them from the testing, but from the hour of testing. In other words, he will keep them from the time period in which this testing is come upon the whole world. So Jesus' language here leaves us asking a couple questions. The first is, what is this hour of testing that will come over the whole world? And the next question is, and in what way will Jesus specifically keep the church from that hour? Or maybe you guys already know the answer to these questions and we can just move on. Or we can study this. All right. When you continue reading, guys, through the book of Revelation, it becomes clear what this hour of testing is because we see it exploding onto the scene in Revelation chapter 6, all the way through chapter 18, culminating in chapter 19. It's the seven-year period of tribulation that will come over the whole world that is described in Revelation 6 through 18, a period which culminates with the second coming of Christ and the establishment of His reign upon the earth described in chapters 19 and 20. This is a time period of unparalleled hardship and plagues and death when the wrath of the Lamb is being poured out upon the earth, which will ultimately result in the death of over half of the world's population by the time it is over. And those who live, those who survive, will consider those who died as the more fortunate. During these days of hardship, many survivors will long for death, but it will not come to them, They will cry for the mountains to fall on them and to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb that is being poured out upon the earth. Jesus speaks about this day in Matthew 24 verses 21 and 22 and says, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will again. And if those days had not been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So this is the hour of testing that Jesus is talking about here in Revelation 3.10 That is unfolded for us in the coming chapters of Revelation. And Jesus says that these Christians in the church of Philadelphia... He says to them, I will keep you from the hour of testing. Literally, the Greek most naturally reads this way. I will keep you out of the hour of testing. Jesus doesn't say, I will keep you through this hour of testing, or I will keep you in this hour of testing, but I will keep you out of this hour of testing that is about to come upon the whole world. So it seems that Jesus is promising the church of Philadelphia that they will not have to go through this hour of worldwide testing, but that he will keep them out of it. Given the fact that this hour of testing will come upon the whole world, Jesus must mean that he will safely locate them in a place that is other than this world. And while it is true that Jesus is making this promise specifically to the Christians in Philadelphia, He seems to want for all Christians to hear His promise to them and apply it to themselves. After all, He does end this letter to the Philadelphian Christians by saying to Christians everywhere, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches not just to the church of Philadelphia here. Now how will Jesus accomplish this removal of his church from the earth and thereby keep the church out of this time of worldwide testing? Well in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 16 through 17 Paul speaks these words. He says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout "...with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together." The Latin translation said, "...raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord, and thereby kept from the hour of testing." Now, godly Christians, very godly Christians, have disagreements about the timing of this rapture in relation to the tribulation period here at Cornerstone. We believe that Christ will rapture His church from the earth prior to the beginning of this seven-year tribulation period. And we believe that the tribulation period will end with the second coming of Christ when He returns to earth with us following Him to establish his thousand-year reign upon the earth. And we believe that Jesus is assuring his church in Revelation 3:10 that he will keep his church out of this tribulation period that will come upon the whole world. The church of Philadelphia and churches of every age may continue to experience waves of persecution and trials now, but Jesus here is assuring them that He will keep them from the horrors of the tribulation period, when the forces of evil are at fever pitch, and when the wrath of the Lamb is being unleashed upon the earth. So given this promise, what should these Christians in the church of Philadelphia be doing in the meantime? Well, This leads us to the fifth act of Jesus as He seeks to motivate this faithful church to hold fast and overcome. Number five, He urges them to hold fast until He comes. He urges them to hold fast until He comes. Listen to what He says to them in verse 11. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. So first of all here, Jesus is promising that He's coming quickly. Up to this point, Jesus has been warning different churches that He may be coming to them in discipline. And we did not take those comings as a reference to His eschatological coming at His second coming. But in this case, we should understand Jesus to be referring to the second coming. A coming which we can say happens kind of in three phases. The first of which is when He descends from heaven to rapture His church from the earth. The second of which is when His wrath is poured out upon the earth during the tribulation period. And the third phase of which is when Jesus Himself splits the sky and descends to the earth to defeat His enemies and establish His righteous reign upon the earth. And when Jesus says, I'm coming quickly, He's telling His readers that His coming can happen at any moment. And when it comes, it will come with a quickness that careless souls will be unprepared for. One should not think, I will wait until I see that He's coming and then I will ready Myself. They will not be able to prepare themselves for His coming when it happens. And with this promise in mind, Jesus gives them the only command of this letter to them. He says to them in verse 11, Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. To hold fast means to seize upon something and to hold it in your custody the way that a police officer might do to someone that he is arresting. Jesus is challenging these Christians to strongly lay hold of what is already theirs and to keep it in their custody so that it never escapes from their grasp. Jesus is wanting these Christians to take measure of all that they have in Him and to hold fast to that. Yes, they have little in the way of this world's goods, but they have Jesus, they have gospel truth, They have the forgiveness of their sins. They have the Holy Spirit within them. They have eternity in heaven waiting for them. They have acceptance with God. They have salvation in Jesus. They have access into the presence of the Father 24-7. They have the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. They have opportunities to serve others and to, to declare the Gospel to the lost. Ultimately, they have Jesus. And Jesus wants them to take measure of what they have and to be continuously holding fast to that. And he says to them, Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. And the crown he's talking about is the wreath of victory that they are destined to receive. And it represents their heavenly reward. This crown of victory does not belong to their enemies. It belongs to these Christians. And Jesus is telling them that if they hold fast to what they have in Christ, then no one will be able to succeed in taking this reward away from them. Essentially, Jesus is wanting these Christians and he's wanting us to cop an attitude. Our thoughts should be, you know what, the world can take my money away from me. The world can take my freedom. The world can even take my life away from me. But it cannot take what I have in Christ away from me. And I'm not going to let anyone take my crown away from me. Jesus encourages them and us to hold fast until he comes. So that no one steals our reward he has more promises to make to this church which brings us to the sixth act of jesus designed to motivate and encourage this beaten down church to hold fast and to overcome number 6 he promises security and stability to the one who overcomes he promises security and stability to the one who overcomes listen to what he says in verse 12 he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. We've seen that the word overcomes means to triumph over Satan. We learn from Revelation 12:11 that you overcome Satan through the blood of the lamb that was shed at the cross. Based on what Jesus has just said, we also learn that you overcome Satan by holding fast to what you have in Christ and never letting it go. So you overcome Satan by putting your trust in Christ and in his blood shed for you at the cross and by clinging to what you have in Christ all the way until he comes. Guys, life is war. That's what we ought to learn from this word overcome. That means to triumph or be victorious. The battle for your soul is real And you can only be victorious in life through Jesus Christ. Every other life outside of Jesus is a life of defeat. If you do not believe in Jesus, you will be overcome and you will be defeated. Your life will be a defeat eternally. If you do believe in him and hold fast to what you have in him until the end you will overcome and triumph. And there's great reward. Here in verse 12, Jesus is saying that he will make the person who overcomes a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. You might want to write down the reference, Revelation 21:22, where we're told that there will be no temple in the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God. In fact, John will say in that verse that the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. In other words, the triune God is the temple of the New Jerusalem, and the whole of the New Jerusalem will serve as the temple precincts, because the presence of God will permeate the New Jerusalem everywhere. And Jesus is saying that the overcomer will be a pillar of, In the temple of my God, he says. And Jesus will make this so. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. The overcomer will forever exist as a stable presence in the direct vicinity of God in the new Jerusalem in a way that reflects stability, permanence, impressiveness, and beauty. In other words, guys, the overcomer himself or herself will be a part of what makes the new Jerusalem so impressive and so beautiful. You, if you're an overcomer, a believer in Jesus, you yourself will be part of the decor of heaven that makes heaven so beautiful. And speaking of the overcomer, Jesus says he will never go out from it from the temple or from the New Jerusalem anymore. The Philadelphian Christians are used to living in a very insecure place where at any moment they know they may have to get up and flee because of an earthquake. But in the New Jerusalem, nothing will ever happen wherein they will ever need to flee from it or be sent out from it. They will never be evicted. Jesus continues in verse 12 and makes yet another promise to the one who overcomes, he promises that he himself will actually write on the overcomer three names. He says, And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. In writing on the overcomer the name of his God, Jesus represents the fact that The overcomer belongs utterly to God and will be treated with special honors as one belonging to God for all of eternity In writing on the overcomer, the name of the city of his God, the new Jerusalem. Jesus is saying that the city will belong to the overcomer as his eternal place of residence and no one will ever stop him and question his right to live there. Jesus also promises to write his own name on the overcomer. Specifically, he says, I will write on him my new name. And we'll see this new name of Jesus referred to in Revelation 19:12 at his second coming. Presently, no one knows what this new name is. But Jesus is telling us that a day is coming when he will write on the overcomer his new name. So imagine Jesus writing these three names on you. The name of His God, God the Father. The name of the New Jerusalem. And writing His very own name on you. I don't know how Jesus is going to do this and where exactly. But if these names are to be written on our skin, then these will be my first tattoos. And I completely trust Jesus not to make any mistakes when He writes these precious names on me. With the name of God and the name of the city of the New Jerusalem and the new name that Christ writes on You and I as overcomers, we will have all of the credentials that we need, and all the eternal blessings of the new Jerusalem will be ours to enjoy forever and ever. We will never want to leave, we will never have to leave, and no one will ever look at the city in which we live and say, I can't imagine why they would be so fond of this place. Keep in mind that these Christians have become outcasts from their society, unable to buy and sell like others could. They don't have the certificate that people get when they offer a pinch of incense to the emperor and confess him as Lord once a year. Yet look at all these things that these very Christians are destined for in Christ. And this is precisely why these Christians are able to remain faithful in the midst of their current circumstances. Jesus has made some epic, sweeping promises and said wonderful things to the Christians in this church. He wants everyone to hear what He has said to them because these promises belong to believers in Him everywhere with a faith that overcomes And this brings us to the final act of Jesus designed to motivate this beaten down church to hold fast and overcome. I'm just going to mention this and read it. He calls upon all to hear what the Spirit is saying through him. He calls upon all to hear what the Spirit is saying through him. Verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And may God open our hearts to truly hear all that He is saying to even us as Christians and as a church through this letter. Just two comments as we close. One of the things that stands out from this letter to me is that things are not always as they seem. In the topsy-turvy world of the Gospel, the person who seems to have lost the most may actually be the person who possesses the most. The person who is rejected by society may be in the best position of all. In the kingdom to come, the person who is right now beaten down and seemingly defeated will be the triumphant one. This church of Philadelphia is rejected by the world, yet accepted by Jesus. Hated by the world, yet loved by Jesus shut out of the world, yet welcomed by Jesus with an open door that no one can shut. These Christians in this church may have had many doors in the world slammed in their face, yet Jesus is holding His door wide open for them. And that's all that matters. Things are not always what they seem. And there's more at work than we often know. From a worldly perspective, this church of Philadelphia was probably quite unimpressive even compared to the other churches of Asia Minor. But there is coming a day when a great reversal will happen and we see a harbinger of that great reversal in this letter. And then finally, guys, I I don't know what the election this Tuesday holds for us. This could turn out to be a week of great triumph for the forces of evil or God may spare us that. Either way, whatever the outcome, let's keep being the church and being the overcomers that Christ has saved us to be. Perhaps things unfold in a way in the weeks and months and years to come that we're left with government leaders who will make decisions that devastate our economy, and leave us in dire straits of economic hardship. Perhaps in the days to come, we will be struck by literal and figurative earthquakes and aftershocks that will make you want to leave this country and even leave this state. The church of Philadelphia knew what all of those feelings were like. And we can be like them by remaining faithful to Christ in whatever circumstances He puts us in. The world may in the days to come close its doors on us and seek to remove us from the public square. It's okay. Christ will always have His door open to us. The kingdoms of this world may slam their doors in our face, but Christ will always leave the door of His kingdom open to us. And we will have opportunity as Christians to keep going through that door and bringing as many people with us as we do so. So let's keep going through those open doors that Jesus has opened for us. And whatever circumstances, a blessing or misfortune that we may find ourselves in, let's serve where we can and share Christ at every opportunity. Let's come into God's presence and let's pray And let's enjoy the privileges that Christ has given to us to enjoy as believers. And let's know that our day of triumph and vindication is coming when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when every knee will bow before us and every tongue will confess that Jesus loves his church. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do this. Lord, I'm just thinking of the words of the songwriter who said, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to His dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to His holy name than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Jesus, if we have nothing but you, we have all we need. If we have everything but you, we are eternally as poor as one can be. You are our Messiah. You are the one to whom we look. You are seated at the right hand of God reigning from on high with all authority in heaven and on earth. And on Wednesday morning, we will wake up and you will still be seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning from on high. And we thank you that we can have this certain knowledge about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. whom we can serve and who always stands before us with an open door that no one can shut no matter what our circumstances. We take great comfort in this, but with this comes great responsibility and we ask that you would help us to be faithful, to shine as a light for you, Lord Jesus, in the days to come. And we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus.